0: Good morning, church. We're reading today from Ecclesiastes seven, verses one through 13. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you very much, Greg, for that. So as you may have guessed, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually one of five Old Testament books considered wisdom literature. Along with that, you have Proverbs, you have Job, you have Lamentations, and the Song of Songs. Now, we're in Ecclesiastes 7, so if you were with us last week, you may be wondering, why do we skip from Ecclesiastes 5 to Ecclesiastes 7? Uh, you're not in the twilight zone. We indeed did do that. Uh, We actually uh, did not cover chapter six because it's just repeating some themes that we've already talked about uh, and already discovered. So that's why we're in chapter seven. Now chapter seven is actually a transition chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. So he's going to quit talking about the emptiness of life apart from God, and he's going to move into a wisdom. In other words, How do I live for God every single day? And remember, the teacher has seen it all and he's had it all and he's speaking to us from that uh, perspective. Uh, Now, throughout the book, it's really important in these things to understand context. The teacher has reminded us over and over and over again that you and I, every one of us, live in a world where control is just an illusion. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Uh, Our world has been broken. It's been twisted. It's been made crooked by the fall, by sin. So that means we live in a world that's filled with things like natural disasters and illness and injustice and oppression. And the teacher wants us to know, that's how he introduced himself to us in chapter one. He wants us to know how to live in a world like that. So in Ecclesiastes 7, even though he would say that we live in a world where we have very little control, very little knowledge about what's going to come into our lives tomorrow, uh, there are some things we can control. Very little, but there are some. And that's, so he's going to talk to us about the way of wisdom today and living life in a way that um, offers some protection from um, all that happens in this world. And let me just say this as well. All the sayings in Ecclesiastes 7 are like little gems. They're each very powerful in their own way. And it would be easy as you listen to Greg kind of read through those a minute ago to assume, well, they're disconnected. I mean, he's just all over the place. He's, he's here and then he's over there. But he's actually, there is something that um, ties all of these together. And he's arguing against something that every one of us in this room battle. And that is, he's arguing against something called escapism escapism. That means that um, when we feel bad, we want to feel better. And so we tend to run to things when we feel bad that promise to make us feel better. We look for shortcuts. In other words, we'll reach for anything and everything that promises to anesthetize the pain, to distract us or make us forget about our circumstances, even if it's just for a little while so we say things sometimes when we want to anesthetize the pain or escape from reality we say things like well I just need some time for myself or you know I just want to veg out right and this could involve escapism could involve binge watching something on Netflix it could involve getting lost you know in my playlist now listen it's okay once in a while to take a breath Okay, I'm not saying that binge-watching on Netflix is wrong. What I'm saying, though, is if you're using those things to escape a painful reality and you're marked by that or you're characterized by that, Solomon would say, well, you're just being foolish. You're just being foolish. And so let's begin to, uh, to dig in. He says in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now you read this first verse and you think, man, Solomon needs a hug. Right? I mean, he's having a bad day. Somebody needs to comfort this guy, but he's not being negative. He's being realistic. And here's what he's saying. So a good name is better than precious ointment. Here's what he's saying there. He's saying, look, there's a lot of things that you can do to make yourself smell better, to make yourself look better. I mean, you can work out, you can shave, you can brush your teeth, you can put on cologne, you can take vitamins, but your character matters more. A good character produces a good name. What does it matter how you look or smell when you walk into a room if when you walk through the door, people just cringe? What does it matter if everything looks good and put together on the outside, but on the inside, you're disordered, shallow, and superficial? See? And, and, and the reason this is so important is this. Character Forms, keeps, and builds relationships. Because without character, you can't have trust in a relationship, right? You just can't do it. And that's what he's getting at. He's saying, look, you can smell great when you walk into a room and still be a person that nobody wants to see walk through the door. And then he goes and says this last phrase, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. He's talking about the difference between potential and fulfillment. In other words, when a child is born, right, they haven't done anything Yet. I mean, the celebration when a child is born is about what they might do, what they could be, who they might grow up to be. It's all about potential. And every parent, right, longs and dreams and hopes that their children will make a difference and grow up uh, hap- happy and healthy in our world, right? But death isn't about potential death is about fulfillment. In other words, I've done everything God appointed for me to do. I've learned everything that God needed me to learn. I've touched every person that I needed to touch. I have fulfilled God's purpose for my life. Now, by the way, every follower of Jesus. If if you're a follower of Jesus today, here's your purpose. You ready? It is to magnify and glorify Jesus in every conversation, in every action, every day, every action, every word to glorify him. So how are you doing with that? Would you be able to say, if you kept living the way that you are right now, would you be able to say at the end of your life, I have fulfilled all of God's purposes for me? I was faithful every day. And then look at verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. He's talking about a funeral. And the living will lay heart to it. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that wise men and women walk into a funeral and they don't just mourn, but they use those moments to look at their own life and be introspective about where they stand with God and in life. Because here's what funerals do, right? They remind every one of us that death waits for everyone. Nobody gets a pass, right? One day I will die, so how do I want to live as a result? In other words, knowing that I may die tomorrow should inform the way that I live my life today. And then he goes on, look at verses three and four. Sorrow is better than laughter. Who talks like this? For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Or you might say a loose translation for that word would be in the house of partying. So here's what he's saying. He's arguing that frustration and mourning shape and mold us in ways that pleasure and laughter can't. He's saying that that a man or a woman gains more wisdom and insight through suffering and through frustration than they do in pleasure and in laughter. So what he's saying is this, he, he might say to us, look, quit railing your, an angry fist at God when things go wrong, because maybe that represents God's mercy in your life. Maybe God wants to teach you something. Maybe God wants to conform you into the image of his son. This is why C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers and thinkers of our day. Here's what he said about this. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a morally deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us through our pain. See, and Solomon knows that sorrow, grief, frustration, disappointment, those things come for all of us in this world. He said that from the beginning of the book, that we live in a world that's broken and distorted and marred, right? And he's saying that wise people learn from that, but fools go to things like drugs or porn or parties to deaden their pain. They don't learn from that. They just try to get through it. They pretend there is no pain, and therefore you never learn anything from pretending, do you? Pretending encourages you to move through life, he would say, without learning anything. Here's what Solomon's saying. He's saying there's two kinds of people that go to a funeral. The fool sits at a funeral and thinks how grim it is and how depressing it is and how he can't wait to get out into the sunshine of the day and to drink at the pub that night. That's what the fool does. But the wise person sits at that same funeral and reflects. They ask questions like, hmm, I wonder when my turn will come what am I accomplishing with my life right now? What do I want other people to say about me after I'm dead and gone? How can I begin to live my life differently and better and more richly and more purposefully uh, today because I know, I'm being reminded today that tomorrow I may die. See, fools are prone, Solomon would say, to run to pleasure, to mask their pain, instead of learning from and wrestling with their pain. And then look what he says in verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. In other words, it's better to have friends that point out how you need to grow, that that point out your inconsistencies, than to just hang out with people that want to party all the time. That wise people get wise because they allowed other people to speak into their life, even what those people had to say, even when that was painful for them. They still learn from that, right? Right? Uh, but he says, look, the fool would just rather binge watch something on Netflix than think deeply about their lives. So the, the issue here is, are you inviting accountability into your life? And here's my favorite verse of the whole morning, Ecclesiastes 7, 6. Here's, here's what he says. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is empty, it's vanity, it's futile. So here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, look, a fool can be burning alive and they'll just keep on laughing. Like, they just ignore the fire. They just pretend the fire isn't there. They just anesthetize the burn. So what Solomon is saying here is literally he's saying, look, quit laughing while your world is burning down. I mean, can you imagine how many marriages would have been saved if they hadn't ignored or pushed off all the problems within their marriage? See, they just wait too long to ask for a fire extinguisher. I mean, they smell the smoke, they see the sparks, but do you know what they do? Nothing. I would say the number one problem that I see in most failed marriages is that they wait too long to ask for help. That's what he's talking about. And instead of asking for help, they just look for the next pleasurable experience. Maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's an affair. In order to escape the reality of their home so that they can ignore the fact that their marriage is on fire. Now listen, here's the good news of the morning. Jesus as living water comes for burn victims. He comes for people who've been burned and now want to help other burn victims you know, as well. And so the issue is, Are we acting wisely? Are we reflecting on life? Are we remembering our death? Um, And do I care more about what's going on inside of me or just what's happening to me on the outside? You know, so the questions are, how do I want to be remembered? Am I numbing my pain? Am I ignoring it? Or am I learning from it? Am I burning something down? Is my marriage on fire? Is one of my children on fire? Is one of my relationships on fire? Quit laughing and pull out a fire extinguisher and deal with the problem. That's what Solomon would say. And, uh, and then look what he says in verse 7. And this seems disconnected, but it's not. And I'll explain why in a minute. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe. That word oppression is actually extortion. That would be a better translation. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Again, this is all Hebrew poetry. And what here's what he's arguing. He's, he's going back. Remember we talked at the end of chapter 5 uh, uh, about the love of money. And so what he's actually going back to is he's saying that the love of money corrupts a person's heart in terrible, terrible ways. And it results in a willingness. In other words, at the altar of the love of money, people would do, will do things that they would have never dreamed of doing before that love affair with money. Things like bribery. Things like extortion. He's saying, look, money will make wise people do foolish things. People, I mean, money just can corrupt the heart. Just be aware of that. And and he says, not only are these evil, but they're just another form of escapism, right? They're just another way you're trying to make your life better, only it's worse because you're trying to make your life better at the expense of someone else's life. Don't do that. And then look what he says in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He's just saying this. Look, it's better to understand what the end goal is. If you understand the end goal, your patience is going to increase, right? And the teacher is saying it's better to see a project through the lens of the end result than to just start a project without envisioning the end in mind now uh, now listen this is church we're a family so let's just have some fun with this how many of you have started a project at home and you just kind of left it hanging okay now keep your hand up keep them up all right For how many of you, how many of you started a project one year ago and it's still unfinished? (laughs) Okay, how about two years ago and it's still unfinished? I still see lots of hands up. Three years ago and it's still unfinished four years ago, and it's still unfinished. You know what? It's just getting convicting now. Let's just stop here, right? But you get the idea. Solomon's saying, look, it's human nature to want to start a project and not to finish it. Um, but, you know, it's just it's not wise. It's not wise to live that way. And then look at the second line. He says, it's better to, be, to have a patient spirit or be patient than prideful. Now, listen— remember the context here. He's argued that we live in a world where we have no control. We are dependent creatures. We can't even know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. So we have to entrust ourselves to a big uh, God who is in control. That's been his theme all along, right? So let me ask you, in an out-of-control world, in a world where bad things happen, how would a... How would a patient person respond to a world like that? Well, they would endure it, right? They would say, well, hey, you're God. I'm not. You're in control. I'm not. I'm just going to patiently endure these circumstances. How would a prideful person handle that. They would say, well, I can't believe God would would create a world where A, B, C, and D would happen. You know, if I was creating a world, I would create a world better than that. I mean, how prideful is that? How arrogant is that? And Solomon's point is, look, you don't even know what's going to come into your life tomorrow. You have no control over the world. How dare you question the world that God created this is the difference between a patient spirit and a prideful spirit you know uh, yeah so you're going to endure that and then look at verse 9 do not be quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools he's saying look in a world where bad things happen anger is inevitable and you're going to get angry but that doesn't mean you have to stay angry you can get angry, but that doesn't mean that that anger has to become a part of you, that it doesn't have to warp and corrupt your soul. He's just saying, look, wise people, he's arguing, regularly flush out their heart in a world that doesn't always live up to our expectations, where people hurt one another, where people say bad things about one another, right? He's just saying, look, don't it's, everybody's going to get angry, but don't stay angry. Don't become angry. Don't let that anger become a part of you. And then look at verse 10. I love this. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. He's saying, hey, that's a foolish to say and it's a foolish question to ask and this is huge especially if you're here this morning and you're over about 50 because here's what he's saying he's saying don't you dare allow nostalgia to warp your view of history things are bad out there they were bad in the 50s And they're bad in the 2000s. Don't ask, hey, well, why is the world getting worse? Friends, it's not that the world is getting worse. The world has always been broken. It has always been warped. It has always been twisted. Bad things have always happened throughout history, regardless of the decade or the time frame that you've lived in because our world has fallen. It has been made crooked by God. And, and the Solomon, he just despairs at the end. He asks the question, who can straighten that out? Who can fix that? Well, certainly not people who don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring into their life. That's his point. This is what he's arguing and what he's saying. Um, And he's saying, look, don't even question why it was better, right? Because if you're questioning why it was better, not only is nostalgia warping your perspective, but you're ignoring the reality of God's present work in your life today, right now. You're ignoring the fact that God is being good to you and giving you his grace and his mercy and gifts in this day and in this season and in this time. It is so important. Now, so I have to ask you, what would that look like? What would it look like for you to live out Ecclesiastes 7.10? How would you need to do that? What do you need to do differently? Listen, churches and people are not meant to look backward. They're meant to look forward. This is so important. Uh, Look, so how does this look personally? What does this look like just for us as a church? Listen, let me just say a couple things about this as a church. So Jackie and I, my wife Jackie and I, hopefully we're here for life. I mean, I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to pour out my life here in this church. This is my calling. Now, I want you to think about it. If we as a church we're going to look back on what some of you might call like the good old days. Well, that would probably be around 2011, 2012. I mean, we were packing out this place, uh, every service that we had, right? And so a lot of people might go, oh man, you know, there's a lot of empty seats in the room. But listen, as a church, we're not called to look back on the good old days. I can tell you, as the person who was doing most of the teaching, we had tons of problems in 2011 and 2012. There was tons of work to do. And let me tell you this, looking ahead, Head. there's tons of work to do because I mean, here's what I know about those of us in this room some of us are here in this room today and you don't even know Jesus yet and so we have work to do we need to help you cross the line of faith so that you can say I know Jesus I am a follower of Jesus some of you are here and you're brand new Christians That means we have a lot of work to do. We have to grow you up. We have to help you become mature as a follower of Christ, right? Some of you are a little more mature, but you've just lost sight of God in your life. That means we have work to do. We have to remind you, no, God's eyes are fixed on you. God's affections are for you. Don't forget that, right? We have some introverts in the room this morning, and you've never gotten into community. You know what? That means we have work to do. We have to get you into community, right? Because we, we need one another. See, the end goal looking forward keeps us from reminiscing about the good old days. And Solomon would say, there's no such thing. Things were just as broken and messed up in the 50s and 60s as they are in 2020 and 2023. So don't go spouting nonsense. That's what he would say. And then look what he says. Oh, look at verses 11 and 12. So now he's going to talk about kind of the benefits of wisdom and then even delimitation. The limitation of wisdom. Look, here's the benefits, verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, money can't insulate you from problems. It certainly can't insulate you from death. All the money in the world, you're still going to die like everybody else. But there are times where money can serve as a protection. And at the same time, there are times where wisdom will protect you from the craziness of the world out there, right? That even though everybody else is running around on fire because you're living wisely, you're not. So he's talking about wisdom as a protection. But then look what he says in verse 13. Now he's going to argue that wisdom has limits. It has some benefits, But even wisdom can't do this. He says, consider the work of God. He's talking about our world, creation. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And the understood answer to that, the answer that's meant to be understood is, well, nobody can. I mean, we don't even know what God's going to bring into our lives tomorrow. We have no control over anything that happens just in our lone solitary lives, right? So how in the world are we going to straighten out the problems of the whole world? Solomon would say, well, it can't be done. All the wisdom in the world will not straighten out the problems of this world. It just won't do it, see? But now here's the good news. See, the Old Testament asks the questions. And in Solomon's mind, there was nobody qualified. Even if a person had all the wisdom in the world, they still wouldn't be qualified to straighten out what God has made crooked. But in this case, the Old Testament asks the question, and the New Testament gives us the answer. And the answer is nobody can except for our Jesus Our Jesus can straighten out what God has made crooked, both in the human heart and as it would relate to the problems of this world. See, Jesus is the Savior that rescues us from brokenness. He is the wise man who shares his wisdom. He is the powerful man that gives us power through the Holy Spirit of God. And just as we sometimes feel out of place and rejected in this world, he too stepped into the brokenness of this world so that one day he might fix ultimately the brokenness of this world and he he was punished by God so that you and I might be pardoned by God see because if somebody's going to straighten out what God's made crooked in this world I mean all of us right that's going to have to start with a look in the mirror in other words I can't fix brokenness out there if I'm broken inside a broken man or woman can't reach out and try to fix a broken world. See, he has to start by fixing the brokenness in us. And that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus does. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just camp for just a couple of minutes in two, passage, in, in two verses in the New Testament. And these verses are actually answering Solomon's question. Well, I mean, who can fix? You know, who can, who can make straight what God has made crooked. Who can do that? Look, look what the apostle Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 30 and 31. And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus. There's the name. There's the one who became to us wisdom from God. Remember I said Ecclesiastes is when wisdom literature? Well, what Paul reminds us is that wisdom isn't just a principle. Wisdom is a person. It's our Jesus. And he shares that wisdom with us when we we follow him closely. You've become wisdom from God. And then he says, uh, God was wise in giving us, he uses three words. And we're going to talk about these words because these are words that kind of would go over your head. These are words we don't use in our culture, but they're very important for believers to understand. He uses three words. He tells us, in other words, he's going to tell us how Jesus became wisdom to us from God. He became our righteousness. We'll talk about that in a minute. He became our sanctification. And he became our redemption. Such important words, and I'm going to make them all real clear as we go along. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Who can straight out what God made crooked? Only our Jesus. I'm going to boast in him. I'm not going to boast and glory in myself, right? Just only in him. Which none of us can say we can fix. A broken world. It would be boastful and prideful. Um, and so, in the wisdom of God, he, he tells us here, Christ has given us three things. Let's talk about the first one. He's given us righteousness. Now, this is a more, this word is more about your and I's standing before God. In other words, The fact that Jesus has given me his righteousness means that I can approach God and God will embrace me and accept me because he doesn't see my sin. He only sees the righteousness of Christ. So it changes my standing with God. I go from a criminal criminal to someone who's welcome in his home because my standing before God, he's given me a new name. He, he's really put me in a witness protection program, right? He's changed my name. He's changed my identity so that at any time I'm welcome in his home. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. And then Paul told us that Christ has also sanctified us. Now this means that God has set us apart It means that though we used to be broken, though we used to be useless to God, God couldn't even use us. Now we're useful to the master. He's he's fixed that brokenness so that he can use us to turn around and begin to fix the problems of a broken world. Not at our discretion, but at his discretion. See, this is so beautiful and it's think about remember when you used to go to your grandma's and she would put out fine china Well, that china was set apart, wasn't it? And then she'd put it away and you wouldn't see it until next Thanksgiving when you went back to grandma's, right? That's what that china was for. And it only came out for special occasions. That's the idea that Paul is referencing here when he talks about being sanctified or set apart for the work of Jesus. It's as if Jesus just pulled us off a shelf and said, hey, here you go. This is a special occasion. I'm going to use you today. And God does that every day. I'm going to use you today. I'm going to use you today. You are useful to me. You are no longer useless and broken. And then finally, I'm going to tell you a story about this one because it's so important. God's wisdom is expressed in our lives through this third word. It's the word redemption. And what that word means is that he bought us back. He, He paid the price for our sin and brokenness through his death on the cross. In other words, it's almost like he paid a ransom for us. And I want to tell you a story about this to help you remember. This is a story that I heard when I was a freshman in college. I didn't write it down. I've never forgotten it. And hopefully this will be a story like that for you. So there was a little boy who was learning to carve wood There was a creek that ran behind his house. He decided one day that he was going to carve out a small boat. And so every day after school, he would come home. He would carefully carve out his vision for that little boat. And after weeks and months of carving and sanding and painting, the little boy was finally ready to launch his new and shiny boat into the water behind his house. Well, the first day was a huge success. His boat floated and sailed just like he thought it would. He, he was so proud of his little boat. He went to bed that night. He slept soundly. Uh, just so, uh, he just loved this little boat. Well, the next day, while he was at school, it rained really, really hard. And the little boy couldn't wait to try out his new boat again with all that new water. And so when he got home, he grabbed his new boat. He ran out to the creek behind his house, which was now a fast-moving stream. Well, at first, you know, he puts his boat in the water, and at first he's able to keep up with the current. But there was so much water was running so fast that the little boy couldn't keep up, and he just watched helplessly as his little boat just disappeared further and further away. I mean, he was heartbroken. Uh, And he he was heartbroken and he was helpless. And um, the little boy grieved the loss of his little boat. I mean, after school, every day he would look for it. He would spend his weekends looking for it, but it was no use. His little boat was gone, just carried away. Well, one day he uh, was—he lived in a small town. He was walking downtown, and in his little town, there was a toy store on the street. And he was walking by this toy store and just happened to look over his right shoulder, and he couldn't believe it. He's stunned to see that there in the window of that toy store was his little boat. He ran inside, looked at the store owner and said, hey, that's my boat. I made that boat. And the store owner was sympathetic, but the store owner said, well, if you want that boat you're going to have to pay for it like anybody else and so forlorn the little boy kind of walked away but he was determined and he got a newspaper route remember those and you know he threw what got up early every morning threw papers uh, after uh, a few weeks he'd saved up enough money to go and buy back his little boat and so uh, the day came, he, he walks proudly into the store, he puts the money on the counter. Uh, the store owner hands him the little boat, and here's what the little boy said to his little boat. The little boy said, you know, I loved you when I made you, but I love you even more now that I bought you back. Friends, that's redemption. That's our God. Our God looks at us, he looks at you, and he looks at me and he says, I loved you when I made you, but then I lost you. You you weren't carried away, you ran away from me. And I was heartbroken, and I was forlorn, but I came up with a plan. I would send my son to buy you back, to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could live in right relationship with me again. That's what our God's done for us. He sent his son to buy us back. This is the wisdom of God. In the wisdom of our Jesus, he has given us a new standing before God. He's made it, uh, us able to serve that God and make a difference in a broken, hurting world. And he's purchased us back from the power of sin and death. That's our Jesus. Who can straighten out what God has made crooked? Well, nobody can except for our Jesus so I don't know what's crooked or warped in your life right now I don't know what hardship you're going through what disappointment you're enduring in a world you know where bad things happen I don't know but our God knows and so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have Pastor Daniel come up, and he's just going to kind of walk us through some time uh, where we can reflect and where we can just minister to one another. And so, Daniel.
2: Thank you, Pastor Brand. You know, one of those verses he read says that it's better to have true friends who will tell you the truth than just those at a party with you to try to make you forget what you really need. And I uh, thank you, man, week in, week out. You're faithful to be our friend like that. Thank you. Brandon is going to sing a song while we minister to each other. And in this song, he does something powerful. All of these words are names of God names of God, Old Testament names of God. He's gonna sing, God, you're almighty God. He's gonna sing, God, you're a healer. God, uh, you are our provider. God, you're our comforter. And scripture says, talks about, sometimes even it says angels sing over us, but right now we're just gonna let the word in song minister to us. And uh, we're just gonna encourage each other. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would. And I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward and all of the life group leaders that are here. I see several of you. I know first service, we had a bunch of people, but if you would just come, here's what our invitation is today to each other. Because at our church, we know, and we're honest, there are none righteous, no, not one, right? We all need a savior. And we all also are in that place where God has started something in most of us and God is working continually and that we're gonna fulfill that verse where he said that sometimes it's the end is better than the beginning because God's fulfilling something in us. But here's what we know too, especially after first service, we all have needs. And there are some of our marriages that are on fire. Can anybody say amen to that? I think there's a few of us. We all have family members that are on fire and we need to pray for them. Yes, our world's in a mess and God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Some of you have a burden for that. You just wanna come to the altar today and you're just gonna intercede for uh, peace of Jerusalem and conflict to start. But here's the thing. We're just gonna let God minister to us different places. Need some people right in here, leaders. uh, Thank you, Mary, for coming, volunteering. (laughs) Others of you. But can I just ask you just to let God minister to you today. Don't leave. Don't leave here if there's a need in your heart or something that God says, hey, take a step. Keep moving to fulfill your potential. All right. Brandon's going to sing to us. You come right now. Okay, come on and let's just pray for each other. Encourage each other. Let God encourage your hearts as we wait on him. Okay, thank you.
3: strength may we have the power to grasp how wide and deep the fullness of your grace at the same time (laughs) we kneel before our King and fall upon your feet so mighty is your name, and boldly we approach. How gracious is your throne? In mercy, we proclaim, we sing. God Almighty, and we sing Jehovah Rapha Elohim, King of Kings, you're the King of Kings. You know,
2: I'm going to ask some of our men, men, I want you to do something. If you were one of those that could say, maybe my, ha- my house is not on fire, maybe my kids aren't burning up yet, but boy, there's really a lot of smoke going on. And our marriage, yeah, I know we need help. I want you guys, take the lead right now. I want you to grab your wife's hand and I want you to come forward and agree in prayer. I really believe this. I believe just you confess or admitting to her, hey, God's bigger than us and God's able to help us and strengthen us, and, and I will admit, we need Him. So I just wanna ask you, I know we do, guys, don't, don't, don't hesitate, just come on forward, we're gonna do that. If you're in a physical situation where your body, you just recognize, I need God to intervene. Thank God for medicine, amen? But God is our healer. Jesus' blood is what makes it available. You come and agree with in prayer for your physical healing. Ask God to do what only He can do. And let's just trust Him to do something big in our lives. Hey, we're grateful for what God has done in the past in our church, but would most of you agree that every church in America needs revival? And so does ours. We need personal revival. So just come, let this be a time. We're going to take about five minutes, and we're just going to intercede. But five minutes times 50 people is 250 minutes. That's over four hours. That's a lot of praying. So let God minister to you and through you in these next
3: few minutes. Immeasurably more than we could ever dream according to your strength. May we have the power grasp how wide and deep the fullness of your grace we kneel before our king we fall upon your feet so mighty is your name and boldly we approach How gracious is your throne And mercy we proclaim Oh, and we sing Adonai El Shaddai God Almighty And we sing Jehovah Kings, oh, and we praise the great I am, the Alpha and Omega, beginning. And Jesus we adore you Yes you are we adore you Jesus we adore you There's power in your name This power in your name Jesus, we adore you. Yes, you are, We adore you.
2: A lot of times, last service we were waiting, and this was a real powerful moment in our in our ministry time. I know we have a couple minutes left, and I ask honestly. I said, "How many of y'all could say?" Okay, it's a little nervous to come forward. We're not used to that to an altar and praying. But right where you're sitting, you can say, I, I could use prayer. I know our marriage could, our kids could, our family could, our business could, our income could. And I ask for people to raise their hands. And let me just see, how many of you could say, hey I, hey, I had one lady tell me, I turned my prayer request in last week. I said, Well, that was good, and we're praying for that. That's what's motivating us as church leaders to pray more in our services because we realize, man, there is some stuff going on in our fellowship. But it, it's different getting prayed for, I know, out loud by somebody when we're not used to it. But this is, we did something bold, and I said, How many of you could use prayer right where you're standing? And and, and they, uh, several people raised their hand. Let me see where you are. You could use some prayer, okay? I want you to keep your hand up for a second. Keep your hand up. I could use prayer. All right, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Okay, now this is what we did. We said, okay, group leaders, go pray for them. Okay, is that all right? Mike, go right there. Mary, go pray for this sister. She's she's honest. She's I could use prayer. Go pray for her. Just agree right there. See, this is this is drive-through prayer. We, we come to you, okay? Right here, right here. Brother, will you, pray, will you pray for them right there? Okay. Don't worry. Don't get nervous. You know, it's, it's all right. Anybody else have your hand up back in there? Let's see. At least. Someone. Someone. Let's see. Someone, let me see. Okay. If you see a hand up, somebody go and just agree with them in prayer. This is just victory. Back in here, anybody want to just get a prayer? Say, say agree with me in prayer for God to work. Anyone? All right, good job. Good job. And God, good. Lord, thank you that you're like Pastor Brad mentioned that you are a river. Holy Spirit of God, Jesus said about you if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being would flow a river of living water. And John said, "And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. So, Lord, I just pray, God, river of God, flood through our fellowship, river of God, flow through our lives, flow into our homes, flow into our children, flow into our businesses and in our income, and just make Jesus known. We thank you for fresh touches of your power, anointing, refueling, refreshing. God, for healing. God, we thank you. It's your life in us. And all we can say is thank you and we receive it because you offer it as a gift. And we say thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and all that you've promised. And everybody can say Amen. Can you say amen? Amen. All right. And listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to the per- Well, first off, let me say this. Thank you for being faithful every week to stack these chairs. But we y'all doing a good job of stacking them?